0: Good evening. I'm Lance Richmond. I am a Mohawk from the community of Akwesasne and the son of Rosemary and David Richmond. My parents moved here in the early 1970s to the large Mohawk community of ironworkers located on State Street in Brooklyn, as well as other tribes that existed. The large and vibrant native community of New York City has a long history going back generations. There are some families in this room tonight who have been here for over 100 years. On behalf of our community, welcome to tonight's event. Wonderful that the Met is acknowledging and creating space for our community in this way. We look forward to future partnerships. Thank you to all the Native people who took time and efforts to be here for this special evening. We hope you enjoy what we are about to share tonight. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for that wonderful opening. Um, Good evening, everyone. I'm Andrea Bayer. I'm the Deputy Director for Collections and Administration. And on behalf of the Director's Office, I'm so pleased to welcome you to this special event, The Sound of Healing, Native American Art, Music and Dance During Pandemics, marking four years of Native Arts Programming in the Met's American wing. This turning point for the department and the museum was inaugurated by the fall 2018 debut of the long-term installation, Art of Native America, featuring the promised gift from New Yorkers Charles and Valerie Diker of 91 remarkable, historical Native artworks representing all major forms of indigenous artistic production from more than 50 sovereign communities. While most of those works have now entered the Met's collection and the display has evolved, especially since the arrival of the museum's first curator of Native American art, Patricia Marroquin Norby in fall 2020, the Diker Collection remains central to our installations. This gathering tonight celebrates the artists and community members whose important contributions are highlighted in Art of Native America and Water Memories, a special exhibition also on view in the American Wing that emphasizes Patricia's environmental and community-centered approach to indigenous American art. In addition, we're celebrating the acquisition of significant historical, modern, and contemporary works by Native American artists that she's brought into the collection. And it's a very exciting that a number of these artists are with us tonight. We're about to be treated to a presentation by the award-winning historian, and premier jingle dress scholar, Dr. Brenda Child, Northrop Professor of American Studies and former chair of the Departments of American Studies and American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota. This will be followed by a conversation between Brenda, Patricia, and celebrated musician and composer, Robbie Robertson, who will join us on Zoom, but we're all used to that by now. After their conversation, the program will conclude with a celebratory jingle dress dance accompanied by the Silver Cloud singers who just opened the program with their welcome song for us. Before I turn things over to Professor Child, I'd like to extend our deepest gratitude to Barry Appleton, To the Jerome Levy Foundation and the family of Marvin Schwartz and to the Consulate General of Canada in New York for their generous support of tonight's program. Thank you all for being here and enjoy the program. Thank you. It's really uh,
2: fantastic to be here this uh, evening and thank you for that warm uh, introduction and also thank you to the um, Silver Cloud singers for that um, for that welcome. I can't tell you how the how excited the jingle dress dancers are to come to New York City. None of them have been to New York before. And we're all, you know, very much Midwesterners, either from Minnesota or, or from Ontario uh, in Canada. And I like to hear the their sound that they make you know, so you'll hear them a little bit there. They're all ready to come out and very excited about it. Thank you. Um, and I, t- for that nice welcome, I especially wanna thank Patricia for having the idea to bring us uh, to the Met to talk about the jingle dress dance tradition, to think about um, the history of pandemics and to um, just be so very welcoming to all of us here this evening. Um, at the Met. And I know from behind the scenes that there are a lot of staff that have been involved uh, to bringing us here to, today and we're just very, um, we feel very honored to be invited. I'm also really happy that Robbie Robertson is able to join us. Um, I, because I was thinking of this event, I happened to just recently watch his very beautiful documentary Um, Not the one we all remember from the 70s, uh, The Last Waltz, but there's a more recent one called Once Were Brothers, which tells um, the history of the band and it's full of Robbie's incredible storytelling. And I was really struck um, that the commentators on that film um, made clear what was so exceptional about the band. um, And that was love. Love is what made the band. Um, along with their incredible, incredible musicianship. musicianship. And, and I was thinking of that in terms of the jingle dress too, because love is what makes a jingle dress as well. And I'll tell you um, a little bit why I've been thinking about this so much in the last few years. In the early days of the pandemic, I published an op-ed in the New York Times that was called When Art is Medicine. And I decided, you know, I didn't know if if it would be accepted, but I decided to send this off to the New York Times because I had been getting so many calls from writers and journalists all over the United States and Canada, wanting to know more about my research about the history of the Ojibwe Jingle Dress Dance. And I think we all remember that time very well, canceling our social events, for us teaching in universities, we started our Zoom classrooms, and also we were hearing kind of back in the Midwest, a lot of heartbreaking stories on the evening news, many of them coming from New York City. At that time we had no hope of vaccines in the near future. And thank heavens we've had all these changes. Just one year before the lockdown, I had opened a small exhibit in a beautiful um, small museum on the Mille Lacs reservation, which is in central Minnesota. We called it Zabaska, Igana Good Day, the Jingle Dress at 100. And Mille Lacs in central Minnesota, which is in fact where my husband is from, who's with me tonight, and where my grandfather was from as well, was one of the origins of the Jingle Dress dance tradition on the United States side of things. Little did I know that a year later we would find ourselves in the middle of another global pandemic because that last pandemic was very transformative for Ojibwe people who invented a new healing tradition, um, the jingle dress dance in its aftermath. And it's a tradition that's certainly still with us today. One of the things, you know, I'm trained as as an American historian and historians often say that Americans do not have strong historical memory of the last global pandemic. And people have sort of um, theorized about why this is the case. Some people say, well, perhaps it was because the influenza was so deadly. And the thing that makes the, the pandemic of a century ago different from the one that we've recently experienced is that it was particularly virulent to young people, people in the prime of their lives. So imagine how the conversation would be so different today, policy, Um, schools, everything would be different if that were the case um, with this pandemic. And so American historians have said, maybe that that is the reason why we wanted to kind of get past it, forget about it. And we had already lost so many lives of young people during the First World War. And what I always kind of like to respond Uh, to that point about Americans not having a strong historical memory of the pandemic. I always say, well, except for indigenous people, except for the uh, native people of the US and Canada, because nearly all native people of the US and Canada remember what we learned in 1918 um, through 20. So every time that jingle dress dance is performed at a powwow today, and it's performed all over the United States and Canada today, we're remembering, we're singing about, we're dancing about the pandemic of a century ago. There's a wonderful um, installation, a small exhibit um, on display here at the Met, and it features one of the dresses that we had in our exhibit back in Minnesota, uh, Zabaska Igana Good Day. So it's a historic dress from Minnesota. And when we were talking to Patricia here at the Met about having a small uh, exhibit about the jingle dress, her suggestion was well, you know, we don't have that much room, we can't do everything you did back with your exhibit in Minnesota, but we could have two dresses. And that was kind of a challenge because I thought, well, what two dresses could we have? How could we ever narrow it down to two dresses? But we did um, choose a beautiful dress from Minnesota that's on display and it is made of black cotton velveteen. It's very beautiful, and we can see, I know from talking to the dress conservators that parts of the dress are very old, that some of the fabric was reused and is perhaps um, from the 1890s. And then we decided, well, let's ask a contemporary jingle dress maker to make another dress that kind of speaks to that um, older dress that we were going to have in the exhibit. And so we talked to a wonderful dressmaker um, from the, up by Thunder Bay, Ontario. Her name is Shannon Gustason, And she made this beautiful jingle dress for my, uh, for my daughter, who's gonna be one of the dancers tonight. And I wanted to especially mention Shannon in particular, because we thought she would be with us tonight. She was very excited uh, to come out here to see her dress here at the Met, uh, the beautiful dress she made, but she was fogged in Toronto and wasn't able to make it in town till five o'clock today. And we thought, ah, so she's having to miss this experience. But when I look at this dress, I always think not only is it beautiful, um, the machine applique that's favored by uh, native people today making these dresses, but I always think every dress has a story. And this particular, the jingles on this particular dress were from an older dress that was um, passed on to me, and it had been kind of passed between the Ojibwe community at Red Lake, where I'm from, and also the um, Spirit Lake, Dakota community over in North Dakota. So for years it had been kind of passed back and forth, I eventually came to um, hold on to it for a while. And we passed the dress to Shannon so she could reuse the vintage jingles for the jingles on this dress. So that's my um, little exhibit up on the Mille Lacs reservation that we were, I was saying this is my um, satisfied look. This is Brenda very happy because I had had the foresight to be so organized to open this Exhibit, um, you know, in celebration of the hundredth anniversary, right? So I was really pleased with myself here, and uh, and it also we had a little uh, kind of installation that sort of spontaneously happened. I asked my husband, who's an artist to make a small, no, I didn't ask him to make a small sign. The Historical Society in Minnesota, who loaned us the dresses, said, um, have have your husband make a small sign because we don't wanna have it interfere with anything else in the museum. And so this is my husband's idea of a small sign, an (laughs) unobtrusive sign, but I loved, and eventually the Historical Society loved to his um, pop art jingle dresses here. But let me tell you a little bit about the origins of the jingle dress dance um, tradition. And I also wanna give credit to my grandmother um, whenever I talk about the jingle dress because I learned about it from her. She was a jingle dress dancer all her life. Uh, And her name was Jeanette Aginash. And we are Red Lake Ojibwe from way up in Northern Minnesota. We have land that goes all the way up to the Canadian border. And this is um, this is my favorite powwow of the year. It's held every Labor Day in Panema, Minnesota, which we call Obashing, this location on the reservation where you it's a beautiful freshwater lake. And if you stand at a certain place, you can see upper and lower Red Lake at the same time, and that's called Obashing, uh, the point. And my grandmother was born just a few miles south of uh, where we have this powwow today. So During this global pandemic um, then, as I say, a new healing tradition emerged among Ojibwe women. And as I say, if you've been to a powwow in recent years, you've seen it performed. Glittering and full of camaraderie, powwows are older than the United States. And it's an indigenous space for drummers to sing while everybody from children to seniors, as we say at the powwow, dance their style. Men, women, and youth display extraordinary artistry, especially during contests. The powwow is a multifaceted gathering of nations, circles of fashion, friendship, and history. And I always think that the jingle dress is a very beautiful part of all of this. We've been working on another exhibit now for the NMAI that's gonna be a digital exhibit about the history of the jingle dress. And I've been calling it making the powwow modern because powwows sort of originated in earlier days and were often associated with men and war dances, especially during the 18th and 19th century. But I think it's the, pow- the presence of women and jingle dress dancers that have kind of made the powwow what it is today. Some people complain that aspects of the powwow have grown more commercial, but I always think that the jingle dress dance exists as a very spiritual part of these celebrations, and it's very revered by Indian people a century after it emerged in the Great Lakes. Ojibwe stories from the Mille Lacs community say that the jingle dress dance tradition arose from the experiences of a young girl who grew ill and appeared to be near death. The girl's father dreamed of a new dress and dance that were sort of imbued with an unusual power to heal. The healing dresses were very quickly made and they were embellished with these tinkling metal cones. And then they were given to four women at a ceremonial dance. The girl was taken to the ceremonial dance with her family. And upon hearing the sounds, the girl began to feel better to recover her health. And by the end of the night, she had joined in the dance. And this young pandemic survivor um, is helped organize the first Jingle Dress Dance Society. So we hear this story. And in fact, I have heard this story repeated many times. And in fact, I was sitting at a powwow up in Red Lake when I was hearing this story um, once again. And it occurred to me that that little girl um, was a very flu-like kind of illness, right? Where you feel so ill and then you kind of turn a corner and you start to feel better. And I started to wonder, huh, I wonder if that could have happened during the big influenza pandemic of 1918, 1920. So I went looking in archival collections for jingle dresses, photographs, and I found I could not find a single photograph of what you would call a jingle dress before circa 1920 in the United States or Canada. So to a historian that tells me something very big had happened. So we hear this story from central Minnesota to North Ontario. And there is one version, more than one version of the Jingle Dress Dance story. And there's another from Whitefish Bay, Ontario. The stories show um, have a lot of similarities. And I just wanted to point out that one of our dancers tonight is Ryan White, granddaughter of Maggie White, who is the little girl in the Whitefish Bay, Ontario version of the jingle dress story. And we were just talking about this backstage when we had all these jingle dress dancers together, and Ryan and her mother are here tonight. And we were talking about the fact, you know, that there aren't really competing versions of the story. But if every, you know, Ojibwe people believe that the the jingle dress was given in a vision, in a dream, and it's very powerful. So why would it emerge in just one community? right, one Ojibwe community. So that's the way we kind of look at it today. My grandmother, who had just entered her teenage years in 1918, 1920, lived on the Ojibwe, Red Lake Ojibwe Reservation in Northern Minnesota. And as I mentioned, she remained a jingle dress dancer for the rest of her life. You know, she uh, passed away well into her 80s And it was always a very important part of her identity as an Ojibwe woman. She had attended a boarding school, a government boarding school when she was a young woman, but that did not seem to deter her at all from speaking Ojibwe, but also having and making her own jingle dress. So as the stories say, the first jingle dress dancers were young girls Yet women of all ages, from youth to elders, continue to embrace this remarkable tradition. Jingle dress dancing holds a spiritual power for Indian people because of its association with healing. In the Ojibwe world, spiritual power moves through air. And because of that, sounds hold a lot of significance. And this is one of the reasons why we regard the jingle dress as so important. It's the sound, the healing sound of those tinkling metal cones. I was invited, I was just thinking how I was invited a couple of years ago um, to down to the Mayo Clinic in um, Rochester, Minnesota, south of where we live. Um, and I have a colleague down there who's a pulmonologist. And they'd invited me down to talk about the healing traditions of Ojibwe people and the jingle dress dance. And he was so amazed by this idea that spiritual power moves through the air. And he thought this was such an important part of the jingle dress tradition because air itself is the healing conduit. So the jingle dress, as I say, is special because of the rows of metal cones that dangle from the garment and produce, as you're starting to hear, a kind of pleasant rattle as they bounce against one another. The effect is amplified, becoming uh, a healing uh, reverberation when many women dance together in unison. Now, tonight you're gonna see You know, you're gonna see a a sort of small number of jingle dress dancers, but they're gonna sound great. Um, And imagine being at a powwow where there are hundreds, sometimes, of jingle dress dancers dancing together. It's very powerful. Observers sometimes describe it as the sound of rainfall, but as an Ojibwe from the north, I think of it more as the sound of ice. Uh, when it clatters and falls through the air. So I had a kind of um, renewed, um, you know, reason to kind of continue some of my work on the jingle dress. I thought it was all done after I'd published a book, finished this exhibition before the pandemic, but I wasn't really in control of everything because the last couple of years, people have had a real interest in this story. And so I've gone out with, um, in particular, a wonderful colleague of mine back from back in Minnesota, um, Nadonis Green, who is a really beautiful, self-taught photographer who lives on the Leech Lake Reservation. And so when we resumed powwows a year ago this past summer after that big year of silence and no powwows that made us all so, that was tough for people. Um, I said, let's go out and ask Jingle Dress Dancers if we can take their portraits. And so I didn't really know what I was gonna do with any of these portraits, but we, d- we decided to do that together. And it's been a lot of fun. And we ran into, it uh, seems so fortuitous, we ran into Ryan White at the Red Lake powwow. Um, and took her picture a little over a year ago. You can see a little bit more of her beautiful dress. This is Red Lake, where I'm from. You see the dresses in some ways have a lot of similarities, the historic dresses to those today. This is probably about um, 1930, so it's like the first decade of the jingle dress dance. And then I'm going to show you a beautiful photograph that Nadonis took of my friend, the writer Louise Erdrich, who points out that women in the jingle dress tended to dance in patterns, not in a straight line. And the idea of this was to kind of confuse the disease. Healers in the early 20th century who could be men or women were valued for their extensive knowledge of plants. And for Ojibwe people, music and medicine coexist in a symbiotic partnership. And because song and dance can heal us, art is as necessary as medicine in the worst of times. The jingle dress dance coincided with a new round of suppression of Indian religion in the US. Indian dancing and powwows and our religious ceremonies were never popular with the federal government. There was a circular that historians call the dance order that condemned many forms of ritualistic dance on on reservations. And it came from Washington in 1921. And it said, the dance under most primitive and pagan conditions is apt to be harmful And when found to be so among the Indians, we should control it by education processes as far as possible. But if necessary, by punitive measures, when it's degrading, tendencies persist. So my own Red Lake Nation, which was at that time governed by hereditary chiefs, we began calling our powwow a 4th of July celebration. And we planted flags all over the powwow arena during the day's long celebration. And at the time, I often think my own grandparents who spoke Ojibwe were not citizens of the United States. Thank goodness women like my grandmother ignored the politics and continued to dance. So these traditions have stayed with us and eventually that pandemic a century ago came to an end But the jingle dress dance remained a regional tradition for decades. In fact, it was shared between Ojibwe and Dakota people until the 1980s when it became incredibly popular and spread among many tribal nations and powwow circuits across North America. It's become even a symbol today of indigenous women's empowerment. There were jingle dress dancers who who, um, danced on Parliament Hill in Ottawa in the Idle Known More movement in Canada. And they were at Standing Rock in 2016 and 17. And now dancers in red dresses call attention to the plague of missing and murdered indigenous women. Today, Ojibwe people number more than 200,000. We're sort of equally divided among, uh, half of us live in Canada and half of us live in the U.S. But we all remember in stories and dance, a young girl who survived a global pandemic. And it's her story that gives us hope. This is um, one of the dancers you'll see tonight, Sarah Egerton-Howes, who's a designer uh, back in Minnesota who has a wonderful company called Heartberry. You can see her red jingles that she dances in. This is Ryan White's mother, Prairie Rose, who is um, Lakota. And she today works on the Pine Ridge Reservation and most recently working to manage COVID-9 programming for Pine Ridge. I should have also said that Ryan herself lives and works at Whitefish Bay uh, for her band and she works in tribal um, children's protection on the reservation. This is my daughter, um, Benay, who is a senior at the University of Minnesota, majoring in art in Ojibwe language with her friend Giege Erdrich that she grew up with. They wanted to be photographed together. And if you'd like to see more about The Jingle Dress, we have a short documentary. And these three dancers, Whitney Spears, and her two daughters, Joanna and Mariah. Um, Mariah was, wanted me to tell you that she likes basketball. <laughs> and Joanna, on the left, says that she likes to travel everywhere for powwows, and she's ex- especially excited about being in uh, New York. And Whitney, their mom, is a recent college grad back in Minnesota, working in indigenous sustainability studies. Oh, and that's one of the super cute kids that we photographed. Her name's Gianna in her jingle dress. So thank you very much for letting me talk a little bit about the history of the Ojibwe jingle dress dance. And I'd like to invite my colleague uh, Patricia to come up on stage and we're going to I've never said this before. Sit down and have a chat with Robbie Robertson.
3: <laughs> Brenda, thank you for such a beautiful and meaningful presentation. You've given us so much to to take in but also to talk about right now. And I'd like to bring Robbie into our conversation. Robbie, can you can you hear us and see us?
4: I can hear you and I can see you too.
3: <laughs> well, Robbie, welcome from New York City. Thank you for being here.
4: Thank you very much. Good Bre- to be here.
3: Brenda's here. Hi Robbie. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and Robbie, we also have many, many friends who are here in the audience who have joined us tonight to welcome both you and Brenda. So I just want to ask everyone: can can we get a big warm welcome for Robbie and Brenda? I'm just so honored that both of you are here with me tonight. And I, I want to share that tonight's celebration was inspired by the beautiful and powerful Native American works currently on view in the Met's Art of Native America and Water Memories exhibitions, including the two stunning jingle dresses that welcome visitors as they enter the exhibitions, which Brenda just touched on. One thing that's very notable when you go into our Native American galleries is that each of the items on view embodies a story, a story that is connected to community, and storytelling. And so I'd like to start there. You both engage in storytelling in your work. Can each of you take a moment to share about connections to storytelling in your creative process and experiences? Robbie, do you wanna go first?
4: Uh, <clears throat> I, uh, I'd be happy to. I mean, For me, when I was a young kid and uh, And and my mother was born and raised in the Six Nation Indian Reserve. She's from the Mohawk Nation. And we would be there and one of the most enlightening things to me as a kid was hearing these elders tell stories, tell stories that sent a shiver down my spine. And and for an eight or nine year old who was hearing a story that was. And and the one that just really, really got me was the story of Hiawatha and the peacemaker, which is a a story that has to do with the six nations and and the unity of the six nations of bringing these people together that had been at odds for God knows how long, and they came together in unity, and to this day live in unity. So anyway, that was very powerful. But when this one particular elder sat there, and it was like a bunch of kids, and there was grown-ups behind them and everything, and he sat in this chair that was covered in skins, and he had this pole in his hand, and he would tell the story, and he would bang it on the floor, and emphasis of certain parts of the story, and it took my breath away, the story of Hiawatha and the Peacemaker, and after that, when we were leaving, I said to my mother, you know, when I grow up, I want to be a storyteller. I want to be able to do something like that. And she took her hand and ruffled it through my hair and said, oh, I'm sure you will. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm even kind of known as a storyteller in, uh, in the music world. So uh, anyway, it's just funny how the circle works and it all comes around.
3: Thank you, Robbie. It's beautiful.
2: Brenda? Yeah, yeah. I guess I would have to... Uh, sort of um, agree with Robbie and I really like hearing his, you know, vivid descriptions of of what it was like to be a kid at Six Nations and and also to be around his family um, who were great storytellers. And I feel like I came from that um, experience as well. I had an uncle who was kind of like a comedian, but also a fantastic storyteller. And my mother was a wonderful storyteller as well. When I was growing up, I didn't think any of those things rubbed off on me at all, but I realized that I do, in my scholarly work, pay a lot of attention to stories, just as you can tell from what I was talking about this evening, right? That, that the Ojibwe, that, that realization that was interesting to me as a historian, that the epidemic may have come out of the influenza pandemic a century ago. I was sitting at a powwow, and I think if I hadn't been there hearing that story, I never would have put those those ideas together. So it's very important in my scholarship. Well, I love that
3: stories influence both of your your work, which is so important to so many of us here, As indigenous peoples, our stories embody our histories and our histories include powerful moments of intergenerational activism and revitalization, as Brenda was just mentioning, through our creative expressions, including art, music, and dance. Something interesting to me is that both of you are currently working on material that looks to a very specific historical moment in the 20th century when Native American creative expressions and ceremonies were being suppressed by the US federal government. So I wanna ask, in what ways do these legal histories and also Native American activism impact your current work?
4: Robbie? Uh, uh, Go ahead, Brenda.
2: Okay, yeah, thank you. I guess I would say, you know, again, you can tell from my, my talk this evening that um, you know the jingle dress tradition was once a suppressed tradition. And I like to read that little excerpt from the dance order from the early 1920s, because I think most people don't realize the extent to which Native American um, traditions, but also religion, were suppressed to the degree they were in the early 20th century. But we have to remember, this is also the era of government boarding schools when kids were um, sent off from their families who were considered to be a negative influence on them uh, to go to these government boarding schools to become Christians and learn to speak English and to, to find new occupations because the traditional way of making a living wasn't gonna work for Indian people anymore. So said the federal government anyway in that era. And, you know, today we can think, well, what's the harm in a powwow or singing and dancing? This is a rich part of native culture. But in fact, some people in the United States found that threatening in the early 20th century. And I think it's just really key for us to kind of remember that point. And so, in talking about the jingle dress dance in particular, I like to say when we look at Standing Rock where the jingle dress dancers were present and so forth, that the jingle dress dance was a radical tradition. It was, it came out of this era of suppression of Native American spiritual traditions and dance, and it's still with us today. So for jingle dress dancers to be at Standing Rock, I find a kind of continuation rather than a new innovation. It's always been part of the jingle dress dance tradition.
3: Brenda.
2: Robbie? Yeah, um,
4: this suppression, uh, to me, the ghost dance was a huge part of this. Thousands of Indians were killed because of the ghost dance. And the ghost dance was a religion that was put together for the return of the buffalo and to stop oppression. At one time, there was 50 million buffalo roaming North America. At one point, there was 500. They had all been slaughtered. Slaughtered for their skins and the rest of them left to rot for the indigenous people, that this was such a huge part of their life, huge part of their existence. They stood up in some kind of way to express and, and, and help one another and encourage one another in their survival. Because taking out the buffalo like that, made them feel like that's us. That's the same thing that's gonna happen to us. And it was happening. So the spread of the ghost dance was something, excuse me, I'm just getting over a little throat issue. Um, So the ghost dance spread throughout the Indian nations. And it gave some kind of hope. Some years back, I wrote a song in honor of the ghost dance. A song that I did with Rita Coolidge, who is from the Cherokee Nation. And we were very proud of how it turned out. And it told the story. It said this in such a a beautiful way that for all of this anger that you could feel, all of this horrible part of the history, th- that you could feel that there was a, still a celebration involved, <clears throat> that there was something that was celebrated amongst these Indian nations that brought them together and made them feel a unity, made them feel something that they all were experiencing and just wanting to do something about it. Now, the government thought this was a serious threat. And first of all, they said, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to do this ceremonial." And then it became something that people, (laughs) that the Indian people were doing just to rebel against more suppression. And then the government went after this. And it was the first of the massacres of Wounded Knee. And this story is so powerful and and everything, all I could do musically, songwriting wise, was want to acknowledge and celebrate this thing amongst the people, the people that were trying to stand up for their own existence and and they suffered so greatly for it. And so many were massacred and killed and buried in this huge grave. It is it is the story of bury my heart at Wounded Knee.
3: Thank you, Robbie. Thank you for acknowledging that history. And I'm just appreciative that both of you are sharing so many moments that indigenous people have experienced um, through generations, this intergenerational experience. Uh, We all are connected to the experiences of our ancestors and there are so many examples of revitalization through the arts, through native art, through dance, through music, And so that's one of the reasons why we wanted to bring both of you here today to talk about sound and healing and the way that it connects to our communities and to our ancestors. And so what I also wanna ask you about is all of these creative expressions connect us with our ancestors, but they're also very forward-thinking. Indigenous creative expressions are about connection, connection to the ancestors, to family, to community, to homelands. So this is very forward-thinking, this intergenerational approach. So what is one thing you both hope future generations will take away from your work? Robbie, would you like to go?
4: Yeah, yeah. Um, I am very excited right now. I'm just finishing up the music for a movie with Martin Scorsese. And it's called Killers of the Flower Moon. And the movie is an epic and it is so extraordinary. And it tells the story of the Osage people in 1920 who went from being arguably the poorest people you can imagine to being pushed onto this land and saying, the government saying, okay, here's something, you can have this land, don't bother us no more. You got a home. And it was, you know, this piece of land in Oklahoma. And they were just glad to have somewhere that they could call home. And then one day, black gold, came shooting out of the ground there. Oil was discovered on the Osage land, and they became the richest people per capita in the world. And it couldn't have been more of an extreme in this story of what happened. But then, but then in this story, one by one, they started to disappear. They started to be killed. And obviously, it was because of this wealth and something going on. And in the story, this is the birth of the FBI. And the FBI FBI came in to investigate this. But anyway, the music that I was allowed to do for this movie is is not traditional. It's not movie music traditional. It is something of its own. And the movie is unlike anything that we've ever seen before, is something of its own. It's new. All of this is new. And whenever you come upon something where you think, God, I've taken something out of the air that didn't exist uh, to a large extent before. And now we can share it with people. It's a very, very exciting feeling creatively. So I'm so proud of Martin Scorsese in this. And I think that we've done a pretty damn good job with it. We're nearly done. It comes out in the springtime. The killers of the Flower Moon. So anyway, it's it it is our little contribution to ongoing and and uh, and and tomorrow.
2: Thank you, Robbie. Brenda. Yeah, listening to Robbie talk about um, you know the joy he's had working on that film, I just you know, I I read that book too, and I just was um, struck by those incredible stories of what happened in Osage history in the early 20th century. And I guess what I find in common when I think about my scholarly career from the early days when I was trying to become a scholar and a historian is I find that I'm always interested in the very small human stories. And that's what has I think is kind of consistent through my work, including what I'm doing now. Or um, I'm writing, a, I'm on sabbatical this year and I'm writing a, a new book about the history of American Indian marriage. And that has been a really fantastic project. But I know when I was a kind of a young scholar, I always used to think something was wrong with me because Everybody else I knew seemed to have these big ideas about history, and I was always following these little stories, you know, sort of on the ground. I wrote my first book about children in government boarding schools based on the letters they and their families had written. And so I find myself attracted to these very kind of little human stories, like the little girl in the jingle dress story, but I think for me, and my approach, anyway, to writing history is that it's only until I see those small human stories that I ever get to the big picture. What was happening to Indian people in the early 20th century? How did they, you know, experience World War One? How did they experience this global pandemic? But I think maybe, you know, I like to think that, that humanity, right, is maybe what a lot of artists have in common. I don't consider myself an artist. I'm still trying to be a good historian, you know. But I think that's what a lot of us have in common is just looking for those human stories. And that's the way that we can all kind of relate to one another.
3: Thank you, Brenda.
2: Brenda, Robbie,
3: it's just been an incredible honor to spend this little bit of time with both of you and to hear about the amazing work that you're doing and just the wonderful and creative ways that you're helping to sustain Native American culture and your own community's experiences and how you're inspiring future generations. Thank you both for being here.
4: This has been lovely. So wonderful to see you. Blessings to everybody.
3: Bye, Robbie. Thank you, everyone.
5: Well, that was tremendous. I was waiting for the next next fabulous dance. Uh, another extraordinary round of applause for our Silver Cloud singers, our Jingle Dress dancers, and for Patricia and Brenda and Robbie. Hello, I'm Sylvia Yount, the Lawrence A. Fleischman Curator in Charge of the American Wing, and we are so thrilled that you all could be with us tonight uh, helping us kick off Native and Indigenous American Heritage Month, and of course, celebrating some four years of Indigenous American, of the addition, arrival of Indigenous American art in the Mets American Wing, as well as the arrival of Patricia American Norby as Associate Curator of Native American Art some two years ago. Hard to believe, it's two years. Both critical junctures have allowed the wing to exhibit a diversity of work by a variety of talented native and indigenous makers, historical, modern, and contemporary, and to explore the entangled histories of contact and colonization, as well as sovereignty from different vantage points and perspectives. Overseeing this more inclusive curatorial work of the wing has been a highlight of my career. And to the artists, we have so many wonderful artists with us tonight, both on stage and in the audience. The artists featured in Art of Native America and Patricia's Water Memories exhibition. We are so deeply grateful to be able to share it with the Met's broad international audiences. And thank you all for being a part of this gathering. And we're also, of course, very grateful to the fabulous dancers and the singers and musicians with us tonight, which have made tonight's extra special. Now, I have some logistical information. Um, If you want to keep the conversation going, which of course we hope you will, please visit the American Wing to see both our Native American art installations, including the two jingle dresses you heard Brenda speak about. The museum is open until 9pm tonight, and it's date night, and so there are special offerings of food and drink in the American Wing Cafe. So thank you again for coming and for all of your support for our ongoing Native American programming at the Met. Thank you so much. Thank
1: you. Hold on, hold on, don't go nowhere. We're not done yet. So um, traditionally we like to close out our events with a closing song. Uh, tonight, um, Silver Cloud uh, singers were here about, I think, three or four years ago. Uh, our founding member, Kevin Tarrant, is uh, is who was here, and he's no longer with us. He's gone on to the spirit world. But um, tonight, we're going to sing the same exact song that we sang that night. Uh, the song was composed by Kevin for Rosemary Richmond, mother of Lance Richmond, our uh, fellow founding member. Uh, but tonight, we're going to sing this song in dedication to Kevin.
3: Thank you everyone, thank you for being here.